This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream uh, producer. Be sure to check out my YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet and Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And uh, don't forget to subscribe. We have a new Star Chamber donate uh, donor in our Patreon uh, subscriber program. Jacob Ribachuk or Ribachuk. Jacob, thank you so much for your generous support. It, it, you have no idea how much that means. Thank you so much. Jacob Ribachuk is our latest Star Chamber tier uh, donor. And if you'd like to uh, become an official donor here at Strange Planet, just go to patreon.com slash strange planet. Patreon.com slash strange planet. All right. Uh, coming up in the second hour, portals and vortices or vortices. Stephen Wade uh, st- sorry, Stephen Ward is a, a researcher of high strangeness, and uh, he'll be here to explore the connections between some modern-day UFO experiences and various traditions of folklore, as well as patterns of uh, and parallels between different unexplained experiences separated by time and geography, uh, like the things that cause vehicle stoppages. Uh, UFOs, phantom armies, and cryptids will also try to work in a discussion about the Mothman and uh, Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, this hour, is there a subterranean reptilian humanoid civilization here on Earth? John Rhodes is the world's foremost authority on reptilian humanoids or reptilian aliens. His pioneering work investigating claims of reptilian alien contact eventually resulted in the birth of an entirely new genre of study in the UFO community. John's highly controversial perspectives have provided audiences with an entirely new view into the world of cryptozoology, UFOs, underground bases, extraterrestrial life, and inner terrestrial civilizations. He's lectured both in the U.S. and internationally. He's also appeared on TV shows, including Monster Quest, 
uh, The Conspiracy Zone, BBC Conspiracies, Animal X, Unsolved Mysteries, and uh, on the History Channel's UFO Hunter. Yeah, hunters, rather, in shows discussing the Dulce base, America's secret underground uh, tube shuttle system, and, of course, the whole men in black phenomenon. John is currently residing near Mariposa Midpines, California, just south of the Yosemite National Park. John, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you? I'm well. You know, you just reminded me the other day, we were uh, texting back and forth, that uh, the last time we spoke was 2008, 14 years ago. I can't believe it. A lot has happened since then, hasn't it? Oh, <laughs> it's uh, an entire lifetime, it seems. Uh, so 2014 years ago, that's entirely my bad. Um, so I, um, I, uh, I promise we'll get you back on uh, sooner the next time. It won't be 14 Please, years, no, I can promise no you that. Yeah, no apologies necessary. It's always a good talk to you. So the uh, the terrestrial reptilian hypothesis, the idea that that reptiles or these reptilians rather or reptoids are are living here amongst us or beneath our feet. Um, tell me about how you developed that hypothesis. Um, well, it was uh, a number of years ago. I had um, stumbled across a UFO meeting in, in Las Vegas, and I didn't know anybody really to uh, go out and socialize with. It was before the Internet, you know, was really popular with all the social sites and everything that keeps everybody home. But anyway, I um, went to this rather eclectic group of people, and I thought, well, this will be kind of fun and fascinating to experience. And coming out of it, I realized that there were one or two people that were claiming not to have contact or sightings of some sort of unusual creature that they interacted with uh, that was akin to like the small diminutive grays that was so popular out there on television and Whitley Stryber's books had talked about them and such, but rather something that had a reptilian form to it. And, um, when I started hearing these reports, and then I listened to an interview with the coroner in, in um, Roswell, New Mexico, when he had um, been interviewed, he said that the uh, the skin of the creatures that that they had been asked to um, get the coffins for, and uh, when he saw them, he said it had beaded skin like that of a lizard. And that seemed to be a very much overlooked point. But I started putting one and one together. And what really sealed it for me is that uh, a paleontologist by the name of Dale Russell, the late Dale Russell, he was working on a uh, model of a dinosaur named Truodon uh, millions of years ago for NASA. And and NASA had asked him, uh, how could you project forward what extraterrestrial life would look like? And when he took this upright dinosaur truodon that had uh, eyes that were coming from the side of its head towards the front giving it binocular vision and it had three fingers and an opposable grasping thumb and it had a large brain he took the model of that dinosaur and extrapolated it out over time and said had it not uh, died out when all the dinosaurs had uh, been wiped off the planet of the earth over time uh, this is what it would have looked like and the model he came up with was a humanoid being that had two legs, two arms, just like a human does, but its uh, physiology would be definitely reptilian. And um, when I put all of that together, I started uh, correlating reports from different people across the United States, 
And then I started posturing the idea that what if we're actually looking at, uh, when we call them extraterrestrials, perhaps we may be looking at something that's terrestrial-based and living on our planet, but we just haven't had contact with it. After all, it's only 15% of all life on Earth has ever been cataloged. There's a lot out there still hidden from the human eye, especially in the underground regions. Right, and and, and if they had sort of an evolutionary jump start on humans uh, and, and had intelligence, then they would, I guess, have the ability and then the wherewithal and so forth to avoid human contact. Uh, but occasionally they have been spotted. So give me a physical description of uh, what we, we think these... First of all, do we say reptoid or reptilian? Well, a lot of people out there like to call call it different names so they can identify their work from anybody else's. But um, many years ago, when we I, I first came out with this and tried to introduce it by doing lectures and television appearances during the 90s, um, uh, we started looking at something that was uh, tall. It was about... Uh, six to seven feet in, in height. It had a head that was uh, had a large, rather large back sloping cranium, and um, not overly sized, but enough to be noticeable. The, these creatures looked from a diminutive size up to that of like a linebacker. Uh, very broad shoulders, uh, long arms, very muscular. The three fingers with the opposable thumb and claws. Uh, some have been seen with tails or not tails. And um, their scales on their bodies uh, are very um, small in areas where they're very flexible, like around the neck and face. And um, they have large almond-shaped eyes with vertical-shaped pupils, uh, slits for nose, and also a wide lipless mouth uh, that, um, um, that is uh, attached to a very prominent square jaw. And they have a very small pinhole perhaps behind some scales on their left and right of their head for hearing. Um, and these are the creatures that were described, if you think about it, back in ancient times. And you remember in the, in the Bible, they say the Genesis story talks about Adam and Eve talking to a snake in the garden. And yes, it's been written as a, a symbol of evil, but when the important thing was um, the... Uh, the form that was discussed in the more ancient works like the Haggadah actually described the being as having two legs and walking upright with arms. And in regards to the word reptilian or reptoids, reptoids is a combination of reptilian and humanoids. So it's a more definitive word. Reptilian could be crocodiles, it could be turtles, it could be a lizard. Reptilian is pretty much anything. Um, so I used that word originally to try and define what people were encountering. And uh, you mentioned some have tails, some some do not. So is this to suggest that there may be uh, more than one, what do we call them, species or race of, of reptilians? I believe that there may be actually under the surface of the earth pocket civilizations of different reptilian beings and just like there's a variation of humans on the surface of the Earth, there may be a very wide variation of reptilian beings living under our planet. And this is kind of an interesting thought because, you know, it takes the whole discussion when the government says we don't perceive any extraterrestrial threat. 
then they're not, they're actually using like a legal loophole to not discuss whether they're addressing an issue that is terrestrial in nature and not extraterrestrial. And I right. think it's time that we start addressing that and get mo- getting more defined in our language on how we, um, you know, appeal to authorities to come clear on what they know. And ah, that's the more an excellent we point. Are, so when, we are, so when, for, ex- so when, for example, someone does a, a FOIA request, they should be very specific in their language because if we keep making inquiries about what might be out there, that gives the government a loophole to basically, I don't know, continue to obfuscate or just ignore the question. But if we're specific, absolutely, if we're talking, keeping in right. mind, you know, that pe- departments like the FBI, most of their employees are attorneys. So, you know, these guys are have been taught that everything is according to the language and the punctuation used in the document. They are so important because you can lie about things. You can avoid telling the truth based on the way somebody asks something. And if we're going to proceed uh, asking this question about where are these craft coming from that are descending from 80,000 feet to sea level at 50,000 miles an hour in less than a second, and the government saying they're not ours, they're not the Chinese, they're not the Russians, sooner or later, we're going to be wondering who's controlling them and what do they look like. Getting back to a little bit about what they look like, they look fearsome. Uh, Are they? Are they aggressive? Um. I would say that um, from all reports it, it, that people have had, and 70, over 70% of them are positive. Okay, There's only 30% of them are negative, and for the last decade or two, people have trolled on that and, and tried to whip up a lot of fear, you know, when it doesn't re- it's not really, really warranted. But um, uh, they, it, like any wild animal, especially if you meet one out in the woods, remember, there's people that we have still living in the Amazon that haven't seen an airplane and they're very primitive from our point of view and so it is with other creatures on this planet we may be seeing some that live near surface areas and pocket civilization in pocket areas of, of, of woods or, or swamps that may be more primitive and dress more primitively meanwhile there's some that are very advanced just like there are primitive humans and very advanced humans right and there are passive humans and there are aggressive humans and there are humans that mean ill towards others. So it's it's a mixed Correct. bag with humans. And why so similar with, why with reptoids. Right. Why should it be different for any other animal space, species? I know that I, you know, I love dogs, but there's some dogs that you meet that are because of life's experiences and stuff like that. They're not the best dogs to be around. They're unpredictable. They could charge you. and You just have to sense that and be sensible. Um, I think that anybody having contact with creatures like this, which has apparently happened down in, near Bishopville, South Carolina in the 1980s. The Lizard um, Man, yeah. The, the Lizard Man, right. And, and um, you know, the, Christopher Davis, they reported this young boy t- changing a tire in the middle of an area near uh, a field is charged in the middle of the night by something about six to seven feet tall with red glowing eyes upright on two legs, charging him and when he gets back, he draws a picture, and this is like a, some sort of dinosaur man. And lizard, I mean, the uh, it was termed the lizard man, but uh, poor Christopher passed the lie detector tests, and the FBI yes. trained sheriff there, Liston Truesdale, for many decades had to deal with repeated sightings of these things, and it was a very difficult thing for a professional law enforcement officer to have to deal with because, of course, it, you know, when, when it comes to authorities, they like to ridicule it, just as much as they do 
you know, like any time you report a UFO, somebody in the past 20 years is going to step out in a spacesuit and say, yeah, yeah, it's all it's all crazy stuff in order to just dismiss it. We can't easily dismiss these things anymore. But given the physical description, they sound like they would have enormous physical strength. Uh, like if they wanted to, if they were aggressive, they could uh, they could rip us limb from limb. Um, many people have had that impression. Okay, and and this is where it's when you're near something that's unusual, you go into a, some sort of a psychological shock anyway. You get partially paralyzed because you're looking at these vertical slit pupils focusing in on you, you know, and, and um, it, that must be some sort of an experience to have. And, and most people, they, they have religious connotations come up in their mind thinking this must be the devil. Everything I've heard about the devil, this is it. And I mu- there must be something evil going on. And, you know, it's and we have to remember that there are incidents in which people are awake. There's been multiple eyewitnesses. They, and um, then there are incidents in which people are having these experiences, similar experiences, but they're in the sleep state. And, and I believe this is because being exposed to the, uh, the information, the idea of reptilian humanoids, more or less loosens the reptilian part of our own brains. And then these come out as archetypes and uh, figures in which we see in our dreams to help us figure out issues we're having. And the fear we might relate to that is because we're dealing with uh, part of the brain that is awakened during semi-consciousness, and that's not normally what happens. And just like Carl Jung would say, you know, Carl Jung wore a, snake, uh, a ring on his finger, and it was Norboris on it, and if, to him, it was a, this was a sacred thing, and um, uh, he he even recognized that the reptilian part of the brain is active and it can play tricks on the brain. So when I've been receiving these reports over the years, and I have to say, okay, this person felt that this was an aggressive situation that took place. Uh, was it really? And then you realize that this person's uh, viewpoint is that all these things are evil around them and demonic, and you can't break them free of that. How do they communicate? Um, They've been known to be heard communicating through a series of clicks, as well as um, one-on-one telepathic communication in which you hear uh, the spoken word inside your head, more or less. And um, uh, along with these kind of events, uh, it has been uh, seen that the, the being was able to manifest some sort of a geometric plasma form outside its own forehead that went forward from it through to the through through the forehead of the person having the contact, and when this uh, ball of plasma cha- came out as rudimentary shapes at first and got ever more sophisticated as it got closer to the eyewitness and the eyewitness felt it more or less touch his forehead and he blacked out for a second um, for many uh, days and weeks afterwards he had unusual information in his head about um, uh, uh, the, the um, science of optics and he went and took a, a, a laser uh, program course when it had already been closed out to students, but he took the test not knowing anything, and he passed the test and 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 um, surprised the teacher. And then he started feeling like this wasn't his 
how could he have all this information and knowledge in his head? He didn't feel like it was his. And then in some way, he felt uh, like manipulated. And he felt uh, like he didn't like that because it, it was, he was acting on behalf of this creature. Was he or was he being stimulated in some way he couldn't fully understand? So it's very mysterious. So the, the intelligence, obviously, is, I mean, it's off the charts. Um, I mean, how many millions of years head start did they have in terms of their their evolutionary development? Are they, uh, well, dinosaurs supposedly died off 65 million years. Uh, how far ahead of us are they? Well, dinosaurs, most dinosaurs died off. Uh, paleontologists now are in general agreement scientifically that, uh, you know, the birds are from a stock of dinosaurs. And primarily dinosaurs, we thought, are, were they cold-blooded or warm-blooded? Because birds came out of dinosaurs. So how did a warm-blooded bird come out of a cold-blooded reptile? See, so right. over millions of years, uh, we morphologically change over time. And if you can imagine, what other animal on Earth other than the descendant of the dinosaurs, such as a parrot, a gray parrot, has the reach the vocabulary of 600 plus words to be able to communicate with us and mimic human speech the way it does. It's really quite remarkable, and that's using a bird brain. So, you know, could it be that we actually occupy space, space that uh, something here has evolved through time with? You know, remember, uh, originally human beings, mammals, came after the amphibians and the reptiles. And there is a common ancestor to all mammals and reptiles. Deep down in our genetic stock, in the library of information we carry in us, at some tiny, tiny, tiny little level, there are memories of these things regarding our past. That's why in, in when a, a, a baby is going through uh, is development. They enter stage of embryogenesis, which means that at times it's very difficult to tell the difference between humans and birds and pigs. For example, we have all we all have tails, and in some instances, babies are born with tails up to six inches long right. that are fully functional. Okay, and in third world countries, they're seen sometimes as unusual omens, and they're left alone. But in most uh, first world countries, they're uh, very discreetly removed, you know, by the doctors because they don't want to give anybody any kind of fearful, you know, bad thoughts. And I've met the, people the vestigial tale. John, we've got to take a time out. Right. We'll uh, come back and uh, discuss further reptoids with the original crypto hunter, John Rhodes, right here uh, with us for uh, the full hour. Stay with us. Back with more in a moment. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. John Rhodes stays with us. Reptoids.com is the website. Reptoids.com. He's the original crypto hunter. And we're talking about the reptilians who, uh, who may live right beneath our feet. Now, given their intelligence and um, their physical prowess. The question that arises is, you know, why are we living on, on top of the, uh, on the surface and they're, you know, down below, they, they should be ruling this planet, one would think, or don't they have the numbers? 
Well, you know, reptiles have ruled this planet a lot longer than mammals have. I think 190 million years. And um, uh, it's the nature of a snake to seek the refuge underground, as it is with any intelligent species when it comes to defense systems. Almost all countries in the world now have some form of underground bases. And it's the underside of the earth is much safer. Did you know that it's actually safer to be deep up, deep underground during an earthquake than it is on the surface? A lot of people don't know that. And it's certainly right. safer in case of a comet impact. So uh, catastrophism is something that is not generally encouraged in societal discussion because big business wants you to think in short terms and they don't want you to suddenly pull your money. But the planet itself shows us often that this that Earth goes through some tumultuous times, perhaps cometary impacts, fragmentary body impacts and such that cause a surface reorganization of all things on the surface almost. And what? Uh, Sorry, go ahead. The, the underground the underground seems like a, a better investment of time to spend. Uh, and in addition to this. Uh, when you look at the dinosaurs that died out millions of years ago, the last dinosaurs probably to die out are the ones that were accustomed to living in Antarctica. And those are because they were preconditioned to living in a cold climate. And if the asteroid that hit caused some sort of a dimming of sunlight and leading to some sort of a smaller, uh, a small sort of an ice age coming in, the, the other uh, equatorial dinosaurs and animals would die off, but the ones in the Antarctica wouldn't. They would most likely, having been used to spending time uh, to, uh, in darkness uh, and retreating perhaps into cave systems, they may have. It may have been their nature to retreat into its cave system and perhaps adapt to living underground. And um, then they could perhaps have been a form of the dinosaurs that could evolve independently, um, especially if they were, uh, if they encountered a situation where a punctuated equilibrium happened. That's a term that's used to discuss uh, a form of um, event that occurs on the earth that suddenly mutations happen seemingly overnight. And Punctuated um, equilibrium. Yes, punctuated equilibrium. And um, these, because we think that that changes happen over long periods of time, but like the sea urchin was an animal that was like a flowery animal all over the oceans of the earth at one time. And it seemed like overnight, again, relative terms, uh, all of them all over the world turn into these spiny creatures. And it didn't happen independently and spread. It just happened independently. They all changed. And the forces on some sort of change like this are most likely... A, um, a penetration of our Earth's atmosphere by uh, unusual solar radiations or exotic cosmic rays that come down to the Earth and that, you know, it changes things at the very smallest levels. That's my, what might be, we might be going through that right now. I mean, uh, we're talking about cometary fragment impacts happening more often now. I've read that, you know, Earth is moving through some sort of galactic dust cloud that seems to have minimal magnetism per particle, but collectively it has a lot. So things are charging up, and it's not just Earth. Things are different, changing on the planets inside our own solar system. So it's not just a global warming. So there's something so going on. Is, is, is there a singular cataclysmic event that that 
forced, for lack of a better word, forced the reptoids underground or um, I mean, can you pinpoint when they likely moved off of the Earth's surface to uh, subterranean dwellings? Well, the the only thing I can surmise is uh, that, hey, 65 million years ago, there was a cataclysmic impact that destroyed pretty much everything. And whatever was left over evolved into birds. So if they changed that much in physical appearance into, and, and variated as much as the bird kingdom is, uh, then um, how much time does it take for other pocket civilizations to actually take shape, especially when they're not under solar radiation influences anymore, meaning that their mutations could happen more along something of an internal coding rather than an external force and adaptations. Because on the surface of the Earth, it's very dangerous. I mean, it truly is. It's pretty hostile. They, yeah, found, That's for sure. Yeah, they've they found shark bones embedded into caves high in mountains. And when they look at the fragmentation of them, they go, this shark had to be traveling at 600 miles an hour. So what's carrying a shark that high up into the mountains and piling it back into a cave? So this idea of ro- continent-wide rolling waves because of a tilt, a tilt in the Earth's axis or some sort of external body coming near us that shifts us after axis on occasion, that may be something that occurs. And um, as well as the solar issue, there's nothing more influential on the planet than the sun. And I think that what we've been going through for many decades here is this argument about, well, it's human cause. No, it's, it's this, it's that. The point being is it's, it appears to be solar caused. And they can't, there's nothing they can do about it. If the sun goes quiet, the atmosphere of the Earth, it balloons outwards. And it, when it's not compact, it allows cosmic rays to make their way down through the atmosphere, and weather starts changing. The Earth starts changing. And the, this, the, the sun is going through erratic behaviors even right now, long periods of acquiescence where it's really, uh, it's really quiet. Historically, those times have brought upon the ice ages, Right. And even the mini ice age just recently where the Thames River was float, was frozen over and vendors went out on ice skates and, and shut up, set up their wares. And continent weather changed and, of course, food distribution changes. And I think what we're going now through is a precursor to these times happening again because of global weather change and um, also uh, a, an over plan to just kind of like pull the world together. And we got to remember if we're citing... Uh, extraterrestrials, when they land, are they want to? Do you think they're going to want to set up different negotiations with different leaders of different countries all over, or are they going to tell us to get our act together and have one voice? And that may be what's prompting uh, recent changes in in, in historical uh, in historical senses, really, because we're being pushed very rapidly towards. Um, some sort of an, an event that's going to take place that's going to try and unify the world. Uh, global warming didn't do it. Uh, so now we're looking at different things. People are talking about the Chinese threat and the Russian threat and all of this. I really believe that most of these nations have agreements behind the scenes that in which different governments, if they're shadow government of the United States, they're shadow government of China as well as Russia. And these guys may already be in total agreement based on the world and its processes and, and, and how things are to be going. So if we were to be forced underground, would, would the reptoids be willing to, uh, to share 
uh, space down there? Would they be willing to coexist with us, do you think? Well, the, a, a great example of something like that is the Hopi Indians. Um, I had personal friendship with the Hopi tribal leader on the most ancient of the plateaus up there in the older Rabbi village, and he was the traditional chief of the Hopi, Stanley Baneptimwa. And um, uh, we had talked about the serpent peoples and their specificity in the specifically in the uh, Grand Canyon area, and how perhaps you know an underground place was found back there in 1909, April 5th, 1909, in the Arizona Gazette newspaper. They talked about a massive underground city that was found that could basically um, you know hold up to 50,000 people in it. And it had, you know, it looked like it had artifacts from Egypt that were deposited in there. And then nobody said anything since. So I said to Stanley, I said, Stanley, you know, what they discovered in 1909 was that you're opening into the earth. You have legends called the Sipapuni, which is like a hole in the ground. And you said that during manifested uh, disasters in the past, that only certain Hopi were led underground by what they call the ant people. Right. And you think of what an ant person is, you know, you got to come up with that, again, this Whitley Strider gray creature with big eyes, little thin limbs and everything. That's what, from maybe a native's point of view, an ant would look like, and they are underground. And, he, and they say that the ant people gave so much of themselves, they became thin and looked the way they do today because of their generosity towards the Hopi that they held underground. Uh, John, just, the uh, pardon the interruption. I've got to take a, another time out here. We'll yep. come back. Uh, with John Rhodes, the original crypto hunter, as we continue to delve into the reptilians. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. John Rhodes stays with us. The original crypto hunter. Reptoids.com is the website. Reptoids.com. Um, you suggest that they they may be living not only underground but also off world, and also in a an alternate vibrational state of reality. Explain that that third one, an an alternate vibrational state of reality. Well, um, uh, we see how strongly influenced religions have been by the serpent image over time. Originally, the world was united under a serpent image because independently, when they these guys took their drugs, they would all kind of see this serpent from within their own reptilian brain. This imagery was so strong that this is what was their standard, regardless if you were a Viking or a Native American here in the United States. They all seemed to worship the serpent. And it was only later that the bird came in, the symbol of the dove or the eagle, the standard in which we live under today, the dominant authoritarian rule. Um, uh the uh, repeat a little bit of your question again for me Richard. oh just this uh, we're, so we're talking about the how they may also exist in a, in a vibrational state of reality oh. other dimensions right. in other words right um and a great example of that is that um uh, people have seen these beings be able to move uh, physically in their uh, space as well as somehow become semi-translucent and walk through doors or walls as if they did not exist. And uh, I remember a specifically a, a case in which I was dating this girl. She had a friend who was dating a gentleman that was a gardener at a church. 
and his 16-year-old daughter died in a tragic car accident, and he was devastated. And um, uh, uh, the next time we saw him, about a year later, he seemed to be totally recovered. And I said, what a, what a great recovery you've had. And he goes, well, to tell you the truth, he says, I was tending to some roses in the garden, and he says that of the church, and he says, all of a sudden, and I was talk, thinking about my daughter, and all of a sudden, I found myself in a different place. And he says, and, and it looked like it was like a um, a public area, like in Rome or something. And we were sitting on a on a on a uh, the edge of a, a a fountain, and my daughter was there with me, sitting next to me. And she said, "Don't mourn for me anymore, Father. I'm in a good place. Everything's okay. We all meet up at the end." And then he looked kind of puzzled. And then, and this was said during the dinner we were having. And then I said, well, what, what's troubling you? And he says, well, the strangest thing was, is that when she looked at me, she had vertical slit pupils like a snake. Dear Lord. He said, right. And, I, and, and I'm wondering in the back of my mind, you know, um, where are these beings coming from? We know some of them are physical here, but we know there's humans and, and ghosts. People have seen ghost forms of humans. So are we dealing with some sort of ghost form uh, or non-human, non-physical form of reptilian beings that were are occupying another area of, or a dimension, just like humans uh, occupy perhaps a dimension. And um, this is why the spirit world and religions are so obviously influenced by these forms too. And so, you know, we're talking about could creatures actually interact with us through space-time moving about and then just, you know, slip in and slip out. We just don't know what we're dealing with. And even then when we have an open contact, we're never really going to know 100% of the truth. Uh, you also um, surmise that they may, may additionally be off-world. So they have uh, bases on, on other other planets. Is that the idea? Well, if, if they evolved prior to man and, and had attained a high intelligence, space exploration is the next great step. So um, there are ideas out there that are floating around that a contingent of these beings may have actually left the planet to go on a tour of other planets and tend to come back here one day. And when they do, they may claim that Earth is actually their home. They've just been away exploring. And this sets up, you know, when we have governments that have contact, are we dealing with something off, off our planet? Are they intending to stay? Do they occupy space? And if they occupy space, it brings up all these diplomatic issues about, you know, okay, if you're in the underground, but you're in the territory of the United States, are you an American reptoid? You know, so <laughs> we have to think about all those potentials that are ahead of us for open contact. And um, the uh, the UFO phenomenon um, are are most all some of the craft that that we see these UAPs are they terrestrial um, piloted by these reptilians coming out from these subterranean bases is that your hypothesis as well? Well, I don't believe they're all. We may have off-world craft here as well and off-world beings who come here to visit. Uh, but it certainly would answer the argument of when people have brought strange metals and things that they found at UFO sighting areas, and they've brought them in for inspection, when the analysis comes in and they say, these are all terrestrial elements, so therefore they could not be extraterrestrial. Case closed. 
Well, that argument is now gone because they'd be using all the elements that we have on Earth, just in different scientific ways to come up with unique materials, just like, you know, we came up with graphite and different things. So, you know, uh, uh, the, the whole argument about coming from far off the planet to visit here, really, we think aliens are going to come from some distant place just to spend five minutes and go home? Is it that simple? Or are they going to come here with some sleeping bags and bunker down, perhaps in a cavern system and park behind the banyan tree or something? Well, my guess is that just unlike on Star Trek, they'd probably set up some hidden labs in which they'd observe us from a distance. And that may be going on as well. All right, John, another, uh, this was a short segment. We'll take another quick timeout, come back. We'll also get to some questions from our YouTube live chat. John Rhodes, the original crypto hunter, reptoids.com, the website, back with more in a moment. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. A few minutes remain with John Rhodes with the Reptoids Research Center. Reptoids.com is the website. Reptoids.com. Um how big is this subterranean civilization? Are are they all gathered together in one location, or are they are they dispersed uh, evenly underneath the the ground? And do they uh, do they communicate with one another down are they these various uh, you know populations? Of course, all of this can be conjecture, uh, but I would imagine that they're distributed across the planet. Um, some heavier concentrations in areas than others. Um, and I don't know if those would be equatorial or towards the the polar regions um, because of point of origin. Um, the uh, the uh, There's only about one two-thousandth of the Earth's surface has an opening into the ground. Um, so I think that we're talking about an, a, a civilization that may be um, more active in some areas than not. And if they communicate, I would imagine that they do, uh, perhaps in the larger population areas, and then by other means they have different communications to outlying areas that may not be on the same communication system. And, of course, this is all conjecture. Right. Because we really don't know. We know that there's a there's probably a higher probability that we're dealing with something that's just unknown that we've been living with on our planet, and that's the point of origin of a lot of myths and legends. And people have dealt with them from time to time, and uh, we may be coming forward to a time in which we have open contact again. Would there would these various populations underground of the the reptilians would would they likely be connected with you know high speed? Um, shuttles, tunnels, etc. Oh, I would imagine that they would, uh, just like our own government is believed to be, uh, actually very heavily installed underground. Um, you know, the idea of a 
tube shuttle being built that could take a person from coast to coast to New York to Los Angeles in half an hour. These are all feasible things back in, with our tech, normal technologies back as far as 1970s. So if and do- uh, an advanced civilization lived underground, I imagine they have something much better even than what we have secretly have linking our, our own military underground bases across the United States. And to what extent do you believe are the reptilians cooperating with various militaries and governments around the world in in these uh, underground bases? Um, you know, I do not know. I imagine if we're if we have some sort of a global uh, a shadow government agreement on a global scale that um, we have taken people from other nations and um, brought them in to introduce them to these beings so they could go back as representatives to their countries and talk about what's real and what's not real, and also the scientific sharing of, of knowledge, because this is what really is, you know, is what it's all about. It's a matter of what technologies could you acquire through negotiated contracts that can be dispersed across the planet so we can proceed with the next novel technology that may not even be of human origin, but we adapted it to our own systems. All right, let's go to the YouTube live chat. And Magavelli asks, John, have we or the reptilians been to Mars? Do the reptilians live on other planets? Um, I imagine if they've, if they've evolved here, there could be similar stages of evolution happening in other planets that are similarly constructed. Um, and that um, there's probably... Uh, mammal and reptile creatures on other planets and and to what degrees they may have evolved intelligence are going to be probably again changing depending on what's happening on their in their on their local planet uh so yeah i believe that there's some from other worlds most definitely i don't think that you know we are as unique as we like to think uh sigma 6 asks are the reptilians responsible for some of the Notorious cases of missing people. Well, just I guess if you want to think that, you'd have to also put Bigfoot in there. Is Bigfoot responsible? Because, the you know, again, these are uh, creatures that we've had sightings of. And, of course, you know, people have disappeared in park regions, and we don't really know where they go to or where, or they, where they disappeared to. So all of that, again, is going to be a matter of, it depends on if you like to hug a Bigfoot, don't think about that with them. And if you're like, you know, petting a smooth-scaled lizard, don't think that about them. Uh, we just we just don't know. There's no credible evidence to say that they are, are directly harmful or have abducted people and taken them to places where they've been terrorized and come back with any kind of physical evidence that's anything more than um, what they have around them. They're just hasn't been just like we haven't discovered the bone of a reptilian being but we're con- conjecting you know conjuring up ideas based on science to figure out could they actually exist are they right under uh, are they under large urban centers for example los angeles would they be under there uh there was a report a number of years ago in which a uh, geologist was searching for a city that the Hopis say that was in the Los Angeles area and that was occupied by what they call the lizard people, and that this was an ancient civilization that lived there, and that Los Angeles was built on that point. Uh, so the area of Los Angeles in itself for, is a very, very important place for different reasons. 
uh, and um, it could be that some past civilization along the coastline settled there as well. Um, it's uh, it's really unusual because you can't. I've tr- I've done television shows in which we've tried to map out the underground of Los Angeles, and they've denied access to the streets to be able to use any kind of seismic equipment to look down underground. Ooh, and so, you know, the idea is that they say, well, every building is sensitive. But I think what they're really doing is they don't want you to see exactly how vast the network of tunnels and, and underground facilities extend all the way around Los Angeles, especially down towards the Redondo Beach, Palos Verdes area, all that El Segundo area where the uh, leading aer- aerospace technology countries uh, companies are, as well as DOD uh, organizations. Uh, Vic asks, do these creatures have a political setup? If so, what kind of social political system do they have or might they have? The only thing that we've been able to determine is that uh, there have been other reptilian beings that have seen that have been seen that uh, do not look like the standard ones. They appear to sometimes have white skin like an albino and also they have wings. And these wings are like large bat like wings attached to, the, to their back. And when they have them folded, they look like these beings are have uh, shoulders that are running really high, and then they, they have this black draping down on it. So it almost looks like their their eyes are lower on their chest when it's really the the, the wings coming up behind them. And um, uh, they seem to be giving instructions to the regular reptilians that do not have the wings. So uh, we've gotten the impression that these guys are somehow in charge. There may be some. Um, sort of hierarchy set up based on physical form, uh, how you look. And, of course, uh, as far as politics, I have no idea. They they may not even deal in politics at all. They may have evolved way past politics. They may have said, look, this is a, a, the, the only people that win this game of politics are the people that created it, so we quit it a long time ago. They probably run their society based more on a business model because of trade. But that's what it always comes down to. Right. What would they subsist on? What, what would they would they grow their own food down there? Would they uh, come up to forage on the on the surface occasionally? I imagine that, and um, we they may be uh, in have negotiated agreements with our surface governments to take um, goods uh, down below, um, meaning they are trucked out of warehouses, go into a hangar, and nothing comes out of the hangar. Just an, a door opens up and it's empty again, meaning there's lifts going from hangars into tunnel systems that, for food support and logistical supports for underground bases as well as theirs. Fascinating. So, uh, John, where can we um, where can we see you next? Do you have any television specials coming up, any speaking events? Uh, well, the speaking events have been mixed for a while. I'm currently yes. working on a unique project that I, I'll talk to you at some point in the future about. Um, and um, uh, right now, it's a matter of just kind of like searching things out. Up here in the Mariposa area, you know, we're still de- I'm still dealing with the discovery of in a- 1854 of a large cavern that was 40 mile- in excess of 40 miles in distance, and it went from the Yosemite National Park through the Sierra Mountains. And the story appeared everywhere in the United States, except in the town of Mariposa, where it originated. And oh, so my. These are the kind of, these are the kind of lar- uh, stories like the Grand Canyon Underground thing that I found a number of years ago and brought out to the public that they, has blown up and TV shows have been doing, d- done about it and everything. This is a new one. 
and it's uh, definitely a most interesting story. Uh, but it again it involves you know history and uh, the na- local natives and the fact that you know we might have found underground spaces, massive underground spaces in the past, and then just kept them quiet and didn't want anybody to know about it because we were dealing with you know, issues in which they may want to later occupy it as an underground facility for some sort of an outpost or something for the U.S. Army. John, absolutely fascinating. We'll have to do this again soon. We won't leave it 14 years next time, I promise. Thank you so much for this. Anytime. John Rhodes, and the website again at the Reptoids Research Center is reptoids.com, reptoids.com. And uh, when we come back, we'll uh, talk about portals and vortices, uh, vortices, uh, Skinwalker Ranch, Mothman, and much more with Steve Ward. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Carlos Kajina is our technical producer. Ryan White is our live stream producer. Be sure to subscribe to my YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet. So I'm looking forward to this hour uh, as we talk about a number of things, the Mothman, window areas or portals and vortices, high strangeness on Bray Road and modern day UFO experiences. Steve Ward has been fascinated by the unexplained for over half a century There were two major events that inspired his interest in the unexplained. Growing up in Michigan, uh, the March 1966 UFO flap occurred virtually in his backyard. The following November, of course, a winged humanoid chased two couples down a lonely country road near Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The legend of the Mothman was born. Steve would be chasing the Mothman the rest of his life, influenced primarily by the great John Keel and Jacques Vallée. His views on UFOs became unconventional and moved toward a more paranormal explanation. Steve's main area of research is what some call high strangeness or window areas, as John Keel dubbed them, where disparate types of paranormal phenomena all seem to occur in the same location. And he believes that studying 
these paranormally active locations may be the key to understanding what the origin behind these manifestations may be. He has his own podcast on the Paranormal UK radio network called The High Strangeness Factor. He's also writing a book as yet untitled that deals with the underlying patterns that connect different types of paranormal phenomena throughout history. Steve, welcome. How are you? Uh, great. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. My pleasure. So it all began with you, uh, it, with the, well, that the UFO flap uh, in Michigan of 1966. When you say it happened practically in your backyard, explain. Well, I grew up uh, in the Detroit area, and uh, these uh, the wave of sightings, we, we were getting reports from places like Ann Arbor, uh, Hillsdale, Dexter. And, uh, of course, these are the ones that uh, some, some dubbed the, the swamp gas uh, era or the swamp gas sightings because Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who uh, uh, then was the head of Project Blue Book, he was uh, an astronomer at Northwestern University in, in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, he came on the scene, and uh, he, he was still uh, tied to, to Project Blue Book. And uh, uh, Heineck had begun to believe that there was really something to this, but he had to kind of straddle the fence between uh, Blue Book wanted uh, him to kind of uh, uh, produce an explanation and just kind of move on. Uh, Heineck suggested that some of these things uh, some of the reports may have been caused by uh, swamp gas or marsh gas. And he uh, was only talking about a, a few specific uh, reports in the uh, Hillsdale area. But, of course, the, the, the mainstream press ran with it, and that was their explanation for, the, for all UFOs was, was swamp gas. But uh, I, was, I was in junior high at the time. I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't uh, drive around uh, playing UFO investigator. <laughs> and... Uh, so uh, uh, we but still these reports were coming in from uh, very credible people. A lot of police officers saw these things. Uh, the Frank Manor Farm in Dexter, there was a landing uh, uh, landing marks were left behind. So uh, it was it was something that was, you know, happening in real time. And uh, it was just, uh, of course, the, the press was uh, it treated a lot of the sightings tongue in cheek, unfortunately, as they always have. Uh, but uh, it was. Uh, it was really a great time to be alive because that's when, uh, uh, when, when all these reports, uh, credible reports were coming through. In, in fact, the reason Dr. Hynek showed up on the scene, he, uh, he went to his uh, master's at Project Blue Book when these, this wave of sightings started. And he said, well, do you want me to go to Michigan and, and, and investigate this? And they said, no, no, we, we haven't gotten any official reports yet. But it turned out that uh, uh, then Senator Gerald Ford, uh, a ways before he became our president, uh, was kind of angry because a lot of the good citizens of Michigan were reporting something, and uh, they were credible people, and he wanted to know why, you know, they they weren't on the scene investigating this. So the next day, Heineck was on a plane and he showed up in Michigan. Uh, the Hillsdale sighting that was at a school, wasn't it? Wasn't that a mass sighting? Yes, uh, th at that time Hillsdale School was a uh, was an all. Uh, uh, girls' school, and uh, they they were watching from their dorm windows, I believe, and they saw these strange lights. Yeah, I'm not sure that that swamp gas was actually a good uh, explanation for some of this, for, for some of what they saw, but uh, they were seeing these strange lights moving through the, through the woods. But uh, yeah, that was uh, uh, that was the, the the one the one sighting. And unfortunately, I mean, I remember that that news conference as a kid seeing it live where Heineck is uh, 
you know, in in, uh, in front of all the press people. And he uh, famously, he was given a photograph of, to, to look at, to comment on, of George Adamski, the, the famous uh, contactee right. who supposedly contacted Orthon in the, de- in the desert in the early 50s. Uh, he's got these, these classic uh, flying saucer photographs, whatever they may actually be. And Heineck uh, commented that it looks something like a chicken brooder. But uh, so, again, he was trying to, uh, uh, you know, he, he was he was still tied to the Air Force, which was very frustrating for him. But late, late, later years, he did separate from from Project Blue Book, started his own uh, UFO organization called the Center for UFO Studies right. in Emmitson, Illinois. And uh, and I actually got to see him speak 10 years later uh, at a MUFON symposium. In, uh, in June, I believe it was June of 1976, and uh, it, it was pretty funny because he uh, uh, he he called his he talk, called his talk "Swamp Gas Plus Ten and Counting." So he, I even I still have I've got that recording somewhere. I was there with my little cassette player, uh, recording the speakers of that that uh, uh, symposium, which was uh, a lot of fun, uh, but. Uh, he, uh, he, he, you know, he, he reminisced about those days, <clears throat> talked about the mistakes that he made, but uh, he, he had become one of the good guys now because he was, uh, and, and he was free to, uh, to, uh, to pursue his own research and not worry about some master uh, behind him trying to pull the strings, trying to get him to downplay some of these uh, excellent reports. So in, in Michigan in 66, did you have any sightings? No, I, I've I've seen a couple odd things in the sky, but nothing spectacular. I'm I am for the most part uh, a non-experiencer. Uh, although you have what you call sort of a, a an unconventional view of the UFO phenomenon, uh, that it may be tied more to the paranormal. Do you want to explain how that works? It, yes. Um, it, you know, uh, most of us, even including people like. Uh, uh, J. Allen Hynek, uh, uh, John Keel, uh, most uh, famously known for the Mothman prophecies, Jacques Vallée, uh, author of many books, uh, including Passport to Magonia. Uh, most of us started out looking at the phenomena and suspecting it was, you know, it seemed to be obviously that we should go to the extraterrestrial hypothesis uh, for an explanation. But uh, uh and, and you know, I was I was very happy with that back in the '60s. Uh, you know, we were seeing these strange craft landing sometimes. Sometimes uh, some entity, perhaps dressed in a in silver coveralls, would would jump out, take soil samples or whatever. Sometimes people were claimed that they were uh, given rides or seen inside the spacecraft. But uh, uh, so that I was very happy with that for a while. But then uh, John Keel, uh, he wrote a book. Uh, a couple of books actually came out in the 1970s. Uh, one of them was called, at that time, uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space. And now I think it's called The Guide to Mysterious Beings. And that's where he kind of eased people into it, his, his, what became his very unconventional views, that, uh, um, that the – he was trying to account for, you know, why did these things, these strange lights and sometimes cryptids like Bigfoot or whatever – they would seem to show up out of nowhere. Uh, they would, but they were seemed to be physical. They would leave footprints, perhaps hair samples or whatever. And uh, sometimes the 
the strange lights were appeared to be metallic craft. Other times, they just seemed to be some kind of light energy or whatever. But uh, he was just trying to account for, for why is it they sort of show up, either amazed people, sometimes scared the heck out of them, and then kind of vanished. And then the, here's the book that just uh, – and I've said this a hundred times. This is the book that turned my, my world upside down, and that was when he wrote uh, UFOs, Operation Trojan Horse. And that's where he makes a case that all these things seem to be connected. He, he talks about patterns, connections, parallels between what seem to be these different types of phenomena. So he, he in, in that book, he connected uh, – Classic haunting phenomena or psychic phenomena, uh, cryptid reports, uh, UFOs, and so forth, as all part of the same phenomena. Uh, sort of. By the way, John Keel considered himself a Fordian. Uh, he did not like to be called a ufologist. And of course, uh, a Fordian is is a uh, is a nod to Charles Fort, who wrote uh, those four great books, starting with the Book of the Damned where he accumulated all these different uh, oddities, and, and, and a lot of them were out of newspapers or scientific journals, things like falls of fish from the sky, uh, giant ice falls, strange meandering lights, and so forth. So uh, it was uh, – uh, in Trojan Horse, he uh, he talks about uh, – well, he used, used a term that he borrowed from Ivan Sanderson. Ivan Sanderson, of course, was the great British naturalist, transplanted to New Jersey. Uh, he wrote uh, The Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, wrote great books on UFOs. And and uh, Sanderson and uh, Keel were colleagues. Well, Keel borrowed a term that he used as a literary device, which was ultra-terrestrial. And it, it, it was simply trying to come to grips, grips with this this elusive phenomena uh, did seem to be kind of reflective of of us of where where our consci- consciousness was at a particular time. Here's the term paranormal mimicry. Um, it, it, let me just try and give an example of uh, the strange meandering lights that we we see we've seen for for centuries through the skies. In, you know, in modern day, we see a, a, a nocturnal light moving in an erratic fashion. We might say, ah, oh, it's, a, it's a UFO. It's a metallic spaceship from, from elsewhere. And the, if you go back to another time, in, in a certain context, some people thought that it was obviously it's a witch riding her broom, carrying her lantern. Uh, the dragon tracks of the of the Chinese, the uh, uh, fairy lights, and so forth. In different eras, these things take on different uh, beliefs. And uh, he he also thought that perhaps uh, now Keel's thinking wasn't static. He uh, he left the door open for other possibilities, but he talked about uh, transmogrifications of energy. That perhaps whatever these these things were, they uh, uh, he, he thought, in, in, in fact, he, in the Mothman prophecies, he, he states that perhaps the only objectively real thing about some of these reports are these strange meandering lights. And when people see them, they, they respond in different ways. Perhaps they're programmed or, or whatever. It's maybe may kind of a natural process. Some people will see a giant triangle UFO going through the skies that other people may not see. Some may see a, a, a giant hairy biped wandering into the woods. Uh, so he wasn't sure that these things were uh, something uh, that was completely separate 
from our experience. It seems to me that uh, that perhaps in, in some of these areas, and I have to stress there's, there's more than one explanation for uh, all these things, I believe. But it may be that these things have uh, – sort of responded to our belief systems of the time and carrying on that uh, nocturnal light analogy in, in another in an earlier era of, around 1897 people were seeing these large dirigible like spaceships that were uh, they were advanced for our time period but they weren't super advanced they were like these big uh, uh, dirigibles or zeppelins really before that technology took over uh, then the next phase of the phenomena were the strange ghost flyers, these strange planes that would come from like northern Sweden, way up in the north. And they these giant planes with eight propellers sometimes, and they would shine uh, spotlights down on these small little towns in the middle of nowhere in northern Sweden. And then they seemed to retreat back into the north. So what, what were they? Were they some kind of a secret uh, civilization or hidden civilization? They couldn't figure out where these things were landing. So you get these these, these continual mysteries. But uh, there are – it just seems that uh, – and when he used the term transmogrification, he thought that perhaps this was – he even used the term of the uh, – when he talked about ultra-terrestrials, he would use it sometimes interchangeably with elemental, uh, like re- referring to the little people and so forth. So it's uh, – it's it's very it's kind of hard to convey uh, Keel in a, in a few paragraphs, but he uh, because of he, what he did was, and what what I advocate is we listen to the experiencers. What have they reported? Oftentimes, their reports aren't that conventional. If they see a a Bigfoot or a UFO, there's sometimes there's this very high strangeness aspect to them. And and sometimes they have people would withhold certain details of their experience because they were just too far out. Strange enough seeing a Bigfoot, but if the thing seemed to vanish in the middle of nowhere uh, or or its footprints seemed to stop in the middle of nowhere and, and then end, uh, that is a little bit harder to explain. Or if they uh, saw what appeared to be a metallic spacecraft uh, of some type, physically change shape before their eyes. There are When you get into these reports – there are just so many oddities that uh, I think, uh, at least it took me away from looking at this as a strictly nuts and bolts, uh, strictly extraterrestrial idea uh, of what they are. Although some of those things maybe uh, actually apply to some of the reports. I had Whitley Strieber on the program last week, and he was recounting some of the uh, – the, um strange events talk about high strangeness that occurred at his vacation home in kingston new york back in uh, december of 1985 and uh, he mentioned um seeing uh, an old high school friend in the midst of i guess this was sort of a recovered memory perhaps through uh, hypnosis a forensic hypnotist helped them recover this memory of seeing a um a childhood friend who had since died and uh, and then on a subsequent um, event, friends had come over to the uh, the vacation property, and someone else had sort of a similar uh, experience, seeing a dead friend in conjunction with you know seeing strange lights and so forth. And it seems to me John Keel had something very similar. He was visited, I believe, at his apartment in New York. He spent the afternoon with somebody, an old friend, um, spent hours oh, yes. with him talking. It- and yes, then later was, he discovered that that person had been 
dead for for several years. And that was something he kept close to his vest for a long time. He did not mention it in the Mothman Prophecies book because, you know, while he wrote about some pretty wild stuff, that's that's really wild. But 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 earlier uh, in if you read uh, uh, things like Trojan Horse, uh, our, our Haunted Planet and so forth, he would uh, talk about how. Uh, that wasn't terribly uncommon where people would see a landing or whatever. And the entities that are associated with UFOs are quite varied. I mean, nowadays we, we just seem to be talking mostly about the greys. But he said there were times when people would say that they had seen a dead relative or somebody that, that, like you said, that they knew was dead would walk off the craft and greet them. Now, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's really bizarre. I think... Uh, researcher uh, Joshua Cutchin is working on uh, a book that might deal with some of these areas, but it's just another another way that it pulls in something we consider a paranormal. Uh, you know, the the dead uh, appearing, and uh, uh, so uh, you know there was another uh, one of the one of the famous contactees, not as well known as George Adamski, but a a lady named Dana Howard. Her, she claimed that she was contacting a woman uh, named Diane from Venus. Well, her first contact with this entity was through a classic seance. This apparition, entity or whatever, seemed to materialize, called herself Diane, and, and otherwise it was sort of a classic contactee experience. Later on, she claimed that they were actual real experiences where she met this being and you know i had the had ride on a spaceship or whatever but regardless of the how we don't know how true that may be or what she actually experienced very interesting that the the first uh, you know with with many contactees they they uh, uh supposedly had their experience out in a very remote area and here she is having it with, with a seance but yeah there's uh there are, are, are Keel kept finding these uh, bizarre patterns. Uh, even some of the uh, uh, some of the reports of the and it, let me just digress for a minute. Uh, the the greys, the classic greys, the big headed guys with the big black eyes, uh, little bodies. They really didn't seem to show up in mass until late seventies, early eighties. Uh, you you could find reports that seemed a little bit like a gray. But uh, we had quite a variety of, of entities uh, uh, prior to that. If you've ever read uh, Jim and Cora Lorenzen, uh, of, of the formerly of the, uh, uh, unfortunately, now defunct uh, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, they wrote great books that just fascinated me as a kid uh, called Flying Saucer Occupants. He'd be, he would go through some of the, uh, uh, they uh, would go through some of the same classic cases like the Flatwoods Monster, the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins, and so forth. <clears throat> but I wonder if, uh, if, if Keel is onto something about uh, part of this being reflective. Uh, in nature, uh, it was late 70s. We had close encounters of the third kind, where essentially you had a bunch of sort of pale grays in that in that film. Uh, Whitley Strieber, you just mentioned him, the classic cover of his first book on UFOs called Communion. Uh, it was like this stuff was perhaps impressed on, on in human consciousness, and then it seemed like we started getting more and more uh, uh, people exp experiencing. Uh, uh, encounters with these grays. Uh, 
So, uh, you know, it could also be if it's a very physical phenomena, it could be that the the grays are the uh, big kids in the block that that have pushed out all the others. But if you look back at the uh, the the wide variety of uh, types of craft that are are have been reported, the type of entity. And the type of experience, well, you have the general categories where they are similar, uh, sometimes uh, small beings, dwarfs, uh, giants, uh, uh, sometimes things that look very inhuman. Um, they, uh, uh, it's just a, it is such a wide variety that you, when you get down to the specifics, it's very hard to find, you know, two or three entities that are identical, uh, okay. two or three craft that are perhaps identical. Steve, got to jump in here. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back. Researcher of high strangeness, Stephen Ward stays with us. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Stephen Ward is with us, and uh, we are talking about high strangeness. Uh, how do we listen to high strange the high strangeness factor on the uh, the paranormal UK radio network, Steve? Yeah, you can just if you just Google that the uh, uh, paranormal UK radio network high strangeness factor. My name Steve Ward. Uh, you, you will find it. It's uh, it, uh, you can download it on Spreaker, uh, uh, Podbean, I believe. There should be several platforms, and uh, just. Uh, uh, did a show uh, to commemorate the my third anniversary, which is is kind of nice. Uh, after you know, thinking I would never uh, never do something like this, have a, a podcast. So it's it's been great to, to talk to a quite a variety of, of fascinating people. And uh, like one one was uh, uh, over a year ago was Alan Godfrey, who was a famous uh, had a famous abduction experience. He was a police officer in Todd Ward in England in 1980. And he had a missing time uh, experience, and he uh, followed up on it several months later. And it was kind of a, a classic experience, which had uh, – it actually had some uh, of the overtones of, uh, of folklore and so forth. We mentioned uh, Jacques Vallée earlier. And, and that's another thing that uh, – another factor that comes in is when <clears throat> you uh, look at various traditions in folklore. And and then uh, uh, compare those elements to uh, uh, some modern day UFO experiences. You know, you think, wow, it's almost like it's a a seamless progression or connection between both types of phenomena. And just one example, we're very familiar with um, the missing time aspects yes. of, of of abduction experiences. Well, people would experience missing time when they encountered. The fairies, or the elementals, or the good people, and uh, they would. Uh, <clears throat> uh, a, a young boy might be playing ball with with the fairies, and he thinks just uh, an hour has gone by. He's been gone all day. Uh, sometimes, when you look at the 
descriptions of the of the entities, the the what we what we think of as ETs in their little coveralls or whatever. Uh, and then if you look at the classic uh, um, um, uh, manifestation or experience with one of the elementals, if you were to exchange clothing with them, in some cases they're virtually indistinguishable. So uh, <clears throat> now in, instead of a uh, uh, of being whisked away to an unscheduled medical exam, uh, oftentimes people would end up in perhaps a cave or inside a mountain or whatever. Uh, and of course, sometimes uh, uh, some some of the modern day experiences, people believe they've been taken uh, to a uh, underground facility. So uh, there are just many many interesting parallels. Uh, between and, and, and Jacques Vallée first approached this in his book Passport to Magonia. That's that book I read after Trojan Horse. So I I was barely recovering from Trojan Horse, which <laughs> at first I, I really resisted because I was very comfortable with my the idea of these things being ET. Some of them may well be. Some of them may be very physical and and maybe come from other planets. But uh, yeah, but Trojan uh, uh, Magonia just kind of put the last nail and the coffin for me of my earlier viewpoint uh, of well, these things. Well, I was reading, it was an interview with Jacques Vallée in Wired magazine recently, and, and he, he said that, um, you know, here he is after, what, five, six, de- probably six decades studying this. He has no clue. After all this time, he has no clue what this is all about. He says he firmly believes the truth is out there, but he's he's just uh, at a complete loss to explain well, I- his books are really fascinating. Uh, you know, I actually, uh, I, uh, last month or so, I, I found an old cassette in the basement cleaning out, and it was marked on their save, which was unusual. Usually I was, when I would record stuff off the radio or whatever, I was very specific. But I, So I put this in a cassette player, and it was an interview with Jacques Vallée uh, from 91 uh, from a local Detroit uh, uh, talk uh station uh, wxyt it was and the the local guy there mark scott who was mostly a political guy uh still and uh was very fascinated by he was reading uh jacques Vallée's uh revelations revelations is part of a a trilogy that followed some years after magonia uh confrontations revelations and uh, dimensions and uh they're having a great conversation while i'm listening to this thing (laughs) and i i uh and I, then I hear me. I'm one of the callers that called in. I had completely forgotten. I, I kind of remembered that I had recorded it at work that day because I'd heard he was going to be on. But to my great surprise, there I, I'm, I'm immortalized from 30 <laughs> years ago. On uh, and it was it was great. I had a nice conversation with him. I certainly wasn't the only caller, but it was uh, it's it's was pretty phenomenal to actually. Uh, I've never met him, uh, and I never got to meet John Keel, but uh, it was great to. Uh, uh, and, and there were other callers that were very interesting, too. So it was a, a really a great segment. So uh, we, we, we were talking earlier about the 1966 UFO flap in, in Michigan. And the other event that, you know, sort of I changed the trajectory of your life was in November of 66 and then into 1967. And that was, of course, the Mothman uh, sighting, starting with uh, uh, two couples that saw this large flying man with with uh, glowing red eyes and ten foot wingspan, following along their car, the the Scarberries and the uh, the, the Mallets, I believe. Um, how do you 
how do you um, view that uh, experience? Because ultimately, I think something like 100 people reported seeing this. And they all sort of gave a similar, it varied, but there was a, kind of a similar description uh, of this of this creature. Yes. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the Mothman? Well, it was, uh, I remember seeing the first report. This is, the, the, the uh, Scarberries and the Mallets were, were two married couples. They were driving around what they, they still call the T&T area, which is about six miles north of Point Pleasant. This was an old munitions area where they developed uh, explosives for World War II. And they would store these things in these concrete igloos, of which there's about 100 of them over this, this area, which is now called the McClintic Wildlife Area, uh, long abandoned. But if you look at the old photographs in the 1940s, you see this f- just incredible complex that they had there. And uh, so that's where, that's where they first saw this thing. And you're, you're right. Keel originally chronicled a little over 100 people that saw this thing. Most of the reports were... Uh, similar. There were some variations, and some people saw something quite different, like uh, Tom Urey saw something more like a Thunderbird. But uh, it was, uh, as you said, uh, six or seven feet tall, dark in color, gray or black, uh, 10-foot wingspan, piercing red glowing eyes. Uh, it, uh, Linda Scarberry, who I got a chance to talk to uh, a few years before she passed on, um, said that it seemed like it, it had its wing caught in the fence or whatever. But they saw this thing, and they, they were just absolutely startled. They hit the gas, and they uh, took off south on Route 62, which takes them back into Point Pleasant, and this thing chased their car. So, uh, and that was, and when I when I first heard about it, it and, and that particular sighting hit the wire services. It went all over the world. And this was even before they had dubbed uh, it Mothman. Uh, some of the locals just called it the bird. And uh, apparently some uh, creative copy editor dubbed him Mothman. The, the Batman TV show was on at the time and very popular. So it was probably just a play on Batman. Uh, it, 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 uh, whatever it was, it didn't really have any characteristics of a moth. And it was, it was hard, you know, the, the head or the eyes seemed to be almost kind of sunken in its chest or the head was very low or whatever. But the thing is, uh, you know, in, when I first read that as a kid, I, it was fascinating. And, uh, and so I, that's when I, I uh, around that time period and, and following, I would start to read, I was reading articles by John Keel and he would allude to his investigations at times. Now it was maybe 10 years later that he actually wrote the Mothman prophecies, but uh, he uh, so, but he gave us some tantalizing uh, stories and some of the things that he discovered in Point Pleasant at that time and talked about the credible people that saw this thing. Now I'm always looking for patterns and connections and parallels. There's, you, we're, we're familiar with uh, uh, conjunctivitis, uh, yes. eye burn or whatever. Pink eye, many, yeah. Pink eye. When uh, uh, people have been uh, in close proximity to a strange light, whether it looks like a metallic craft or it just looks like a blob of light, sometimes they experience this this malady. Well, one of the primary witnesses, a young lady named Connie Carpenter, saw this thing. She was driving by the Mason County Golf Course, and it was it was uh, standing there. Now. The Mothman was quite a quite of a paradox because uh, sometimes it would be seen 
taking off straight like a helicopter. Like a, no, no bird of any description or size is going to do that. That's what she saw. Sometimes it would seem to put its wings behind it and then just take off straight up. But she saw this thing, was terrified and mesmerized by the red glowing eyes. In the days following, she developed conjunctivitis, something that is, uh, you know, is mostly associated with uh, some kind of a strange or unexplained or unidentified craft in the sky. Steve, so that was uh, pardon very, the interruption. Yes. I've got to jump in here. We're going to break away sure. and we'll come back and continue to discuss the Mothman. Stephen Ward, researcher of high strangeness. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Steve Ward. And uh, you can hear him on the Paranormal UK Radio Network, and his podcast is called The High Strangeness Factor. The High Strangeness Factor. If you go to strangeplanet.ca and under tonight's show information and just just click on Steve's uh, name, uh, that will take you right to the Paranormal UK Radio Network, and then you can find his uh, podcast. And uh, is that every other Tuesday? Uh, yes, it, it's, yeah, it comes up every other Tuesday. It, it's a podcast that you can uh, download once it's up, and there's and, and all the uh, shows are there uh, in in the for the past three years. Fantastic. So we were talking about the Mothman and this one uh, witness after seeing it developed a case of conjunctivitis or pink eye. Um, so I sort of interrupted you in the middle of that story. Continue. Yeah, that was actually when when John Keel first uh, appeared on the scene. He asked. Uh, uh, he was at, I think it was Mrs. DeWitt's house, and uh, they they gathered together uh, several people that had seen this thing recently. So he was able to to interview them. Something else he found, and and other researchers it was a, a Swedish researcher whose name I don't recall, but he was also a colleague of Kiel. Kind of followed him in a year or two later, and and interviewed many of the same witnesses. Oh, was that Brun, Brunvand? Jan Harald Brunvand, I think. I, I I think this was a different one. But, ah, okay. uh, he, he had he was he made some really good friendships with several uh, of the uh, Swedish people, Swedish researchers. But uh, they were finding that uh, a lot of the people that had a sighting of the Mothman would they go home and they would have an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena. Of course, poltergeist phenomena is where uh, things seem to fly around the room or whatever inexplicably. It's a, an experience that is as old as we are. But what the heck? You know, why Why would people seeing this this creature, uh, uh, that, you know, experience something like that? It, it was uh, – the Mothman had many problems with it trying to put it in a physical realm. You know, the way the – obviously the wings didn't work well. The, the A 10-foot wingspan probably wouldn't lift something that's six or seven feet tall. Uh, some people uh, that had a close proximity – encounter with it said it's they heard something like a humming or machinery or something like that keel got some of those reports so it, it may have even left footprints by the uh the old north power plant he found keel found uh sets of different types of footprints but some kind of uh, 
weird-looking skinny footprints that may be attributed to the creature or not. He also found large dog-like footprints, something that today we would associate with the with the dog man. And he and and uh, 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 Ivan Sanderson. And other subsequent researchers have all said that the, uh, you will find these kinds of footprints in these paranormal hotspots. So that's fascinating. I mean, the you know they aren't weren't really reporting dogman like like sightings, but something was making these things. And so you know how do we? That, that's what I find so fascinating. How do we reconcile these different? Uh, different aspects that seem like they should go into another category. Right. And and, and to further complicate things, we have the connection between the Mothman and the the collapse of the Silver Bridge in December of 67. What is the connection there? Well, uh, you'll talk to some people. Some believe that this creature uh, actually caused it. Others uh, thought it was more of a harbinger, like a banshee. My problem is these harbingers are, you know, how, how we, you know, if it actually is there trying to warn us, uh, the messages are very deceptive. It's, it's very difficult. Nobody looked at the bridge, even those that some people were getting uh, prophetic dreams or whatever. Keel believed that uh, he was in contact, by the way, with several people. This is where the prophecies comes in from the Mothman prophecies. There were several what he called silent contactees. And these are people that believe that they were uh, in contact with some kind of a being, a, a space brother, some kind of a higher intelligence. And they would be given prophecies that would sometimes come true. But after, at some point, sometimes they would get the big prophecy, like the, the there's going to be a mass landing on the hill and get your buddies out there, and then it would be gone. The same general thing happened with the uh, leading up to the collapse of the Silver Bridge. Uh, he was getting messages from these contactees that didn't know each other. They were He called them silent contactees because they weren't particularly interested in any publicity. But they were telling him that their, that their sources, their, the, the messages that they were getting, it was leading up to some kind of an EM effect. And the implication was there was going to be some kind of a tragedy on the Ohio River. Keel believed it was going to be one of the factories, perhaps, going to blow up. And he, he, was, uh, he talked to Mary Heyer. Mary Heyer <clears throat> was the uh, – um, Mary Heyer was a local reporter that became a friend and colleague. They, they would actually go down a little bit south of Point Pleasant and watch the strange meandering lights go over every night. These were, they were so plentiful. But uh, – he told Mary that not to tell anybody of his suspicions, because if a factory did blow up, the first person they're going to go to is this guy that, that prophesied it, wondering if he planted the bomb. Steve, this but, was a, a short segment. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll uh, take a, another quick time. We'll come back and uh, continue to delve into the, uh, the Mothman and uh, the collapse of the Silver Bridge, time permitting. We'll talk about uh, Bray Road, maybe even Skinwalker Ranch. Back with Steve Ward right after these providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions this is the conspiracy show with richard sarrett on zoomer radio welcome back a few minutes remain with steve ward host of the high strangeness factor 
the podcast heard at the Paranormal UK Radio Network. We're talking about, among other things, the Mothman Prophecy. And uh, you were in the midst of telling the story about uh, uh, John Keel and Mary Heyer, um, who was a, a newspaper reporter. Uh, memory serves, she was, placed, uh, she was played by Laura Linney in uh, The Mothman Prophecies, a terrific right. actress. Um, so continue on with that story. Um, um, Heyer and, and Keel would be watching the, uh, the strange lights around uh, Point Pleasant. And the, uh, the the these messages were were, were telling and, and again I remind people that these were uh, coming from people that didn't know each other. Well, they started talking about this EM effect that was going to take place on December fifteenth. The closer it got to the date, they would get more specific information. Uh, the moment when President Johnson uh, uh, turned on the lights for the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center, uh, there was supposed to be a uh, uh, some kind of a tragedy take place. Uh, I think three days of darkness and uh, whatever, you know, they weren't specific about what this EM effect meant. Well, what happened was now Keel by this time was uh, he, he admitted how paranoid he got. Uh, it was interesting to hear him interviewed on uh, Art Bell, Coast to Coast. He hadn't done an interview for a long time. But when the film came out, he, uh, he, he, was, he granted, the, granted that interview. And he said the one thing that the film really nailed was the par- paranoia that I felt at the time. Well, at the moment that this EM effect was supposed to take place, he, got, he saw the messages come over the TV set that the Silver Bridge... Uh, that that joined Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and Gallupolis, Ohio, had collapsed. Uh, this is uh, December fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven, and uh, it's uh, uh, it's it's about it's in, in, in lower twenty degrees. And the sun is almost down. The bridge is filled with rush hour traffic, and the whole thing just collapses in a few moments into the Ohio River, and. Uh, uh, 46 people lost their life. So, you know, uh, the, I, I don't know that, uh, that the, the Mothman was significant, uh, you know, in, in the, the, toward the tragedy or trying to warn people or, or whatever. I think it, it just, it happened with all the other high strangeness that went on at the time. It, when you look at other, other areas, other high strangeness areas, oftentimes there seems to be sort of a predominant cryptid involved, sometimes more than one. Look at the Skinwalker Ranch that has been uh, on, on television, the, the book by, by Knapp and Kelleher, The Hunt by right. Skinwalker. So uh, it was, uh, I, I tend not to believe that the, this, these, this being or whatever caused the bridge collapse, but uh, you look at this that, that year of all the you know the strange lights missing time uh, visits by so-called men in black uh, it was just it's just one of those classic areas that still happens now and then today there are other areas where this this wide variety of phenomena seems to take place and it's very hard to understand why what the connection are uh, connections are but it does seem that it, it can't be just a, a mere coincidence that all these different types of haunting, uh, cryptid, uh, UFO, mandarin light phenomena all takes place in one area. Well, Appalachia seems to be a, a real hot spot. Um, I spoke with a gentleman who wrote a book about uh, haunted hollows and hills in Greene County, which is, I guess, the south is at the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania, and uh, it's often cited as one of the most 
haunted locations in uh, in North America. And then you mentioned Skinwalker. Uh, is there a common thread there, do you think? I don't know. Is there something about these physical locations when we're talking about portals? Is there something in the soil composition, high iron content? Uh, sometimes we hear about limestone. I mean, wh- wh- right. wh- what's well, going on there? That I don't know. The, the people that are a lot smarter than I, I am have talked about things like limestone and quartz and perhaps the physical makeup of the geography uh, sort of uh, allows these things or helps these things to become manifest. But uh, it's it's just it, it's such a impenetrable mystery uh, as to the why why these things all happen in the same area. And there are so many of them, uh, like Marley Woods, the uh, the Bridgewater Triangle out uh, in Massachusetts. Um, it, it's, it's something that I don't have a, a, a grasp on yet as to why certain areas seem to be real hotspots for all these different types of phenomena. Do you think there's any, um, I th- was it Frank Myers, the, uh, the researcher talked about, I think it was Myers who talked about the perhaps the role of um, electromagnetic fields. Uh, it, perhaps it does. It does seem like uh, you know people will get uh, readings off the charts in these areas with their meters and so forth. But you know, it, it's uh, it's not always consistent. It's almost like that window uh, opens, you know, a little ways. And you know the phenomena takes place. The you could where you can get physical readings that you know uh, even cast physical footprints uh, of these things, and then it perhaps it closes again. And uh, it, like like Brigadoon, it just shows up once in a while. But uh, in 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 the Point Pleasant area, people still have weird experiences, but it doesn't seem to have the the high level that it did there. Where and the even the Skinwalker Ranch it has a lot of activity, but. Uh, they, they talk about how back in the 90s it really peaked. I mean, it was just, it, it was crazy the, the things that were going on there. So uh, it's uh, th- that's that's what we're trying to figure out. And I, I wish I had, uh, you know, a, a great answer. Maybe when I finish my book one day, I'll have all the answers. Uh, well, speaking about you know EMF and so forth, and some some people are more sensitive to electrical fields than others. Um, do you think that might explain why some people seem to, to have these experiences and others do not? Perhaps their brains are wired somewhat it, it, differently? It, it may very well. Keel believed uh, early on that uh, certain people were naturally psychic. There were, there were certain people that were wired a certain way that would be more apt to have uh, some of these experiences. Maybe that's why I have had... I've had one bizarre experience in, in my life, really. Uh, but uh, so many of these people, uh, in fact, you said that sometimes the same person that would experience a UFO, uh, and, and that's why he had this great catchphrase. He said, ask the contactee, meaning the experiencer, what he or she had for breakfast. And not literally what they, what they actually ate for breakfast, but find out all about that individual. Because he found that they, from from the time of childhood or whatever, like look at Whitley Strieber. He found out that he was having these experiences as a young child, and his family was as well. Well, so many of these people were having 
would have experiences, bizarre paranormal experiences all their life. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, living in haunted houses, seeing strange lights, having missing time and so forth. But there does seem to be that for whatever reason, certain people are more tuned in and prone to this. And he, he found that somebody, uh, I talked to a lady in New Hampshire a few years ago who uh, had a missing time experience. So I asked her a series of John Keel style questions. And I found out that they were experiencing classic haunting phenomena. Uh, her sons were seeing orbs inside and outside the house. Uh, it's just all kinds of things that fit the pattern. And then I asked her, I said, this is going to sound crazy, but have you ever seen anything, any kind of an animal that you couldn't identify or, or just looked very strange? And she said, no. And then she said, well, well wait a minute. My mother-in-law and sister-in-law on this near this property both both saw something strange in the woods. This thing was seen uh, two different times, and it was something like a panther-like creature, but it was standing on two legs. Uh, so I got all kinds of. Uh, she saw. Uh, she was seeing shadow people. Uh, I never would have, you know, if I was frozen in the 1960s, believing that these things were ET. I would have said uh, to she and her husband, well, I hope you make a breakthrough with your the missing time. And I would have never known to ask all these other questions because – and I've talked to other people like this. Uh, Stan Gordon has uh, uh, the Pennsylvania researcher. Uh, Rosemary Allen Guiley found an interesting connection between people that were experiencing uh, – having abduction experiences. And they were also experiencing classic uh, – uh, shadow people experiences so there's there's something that binds these all things together there's something where some people seem to have many of these experiences whereas others have absolutely none or very few right it's i think this stuff maybe drives the people in this sort of the ufo community if i can use that term it must drive them nuts because it's like it's muddying the water for them uh you know they're they're married to this idea of you know, whatever is piloting these these craft are must be of extraterrestrial origin. But as you're describing, it is so much more complicated than that. Do you, I mean, again, going back to my conversation with Whitley Strieber uh, and this idea that, you know, this is what we're describing really maybe is our reality. Uh, but there's only, you know, a certain percentage of us that actually get to experience it. But it's all around us all the time. Yes. And it's it's something you you can't put in a laboratory. I remember reading the uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker, and that they had documented a couple hundred different types of paranormal events, but they weren't repeating themselves. These things are all substantially different. How do you apply the scientific method to something that is so prolific, plentiful, uh, 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 but you, that doesn't uh, doesn't actually repeat itself, so that you can can analyze it using the scientific method. Steve, I really enjoyed uh, meeting you and speaking with you. We'll have to do this again. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. My pleasure. Steve Ward. And uh, don't forget, the, uh, the podcast is called The High Strangeness Factor on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to Carlos and Ryan. I'll be back next week with a brand new show. We've got a good one lined up for you. I think we're going to do two hours on the Illuminati and uh, a, a major book they've just uh, uh, come out with at Inner Traditions, a, um, a translation 
a, a translation on the Illuminati book. So we'll, uh, we'll plan on that for next week. I hope you'll join me. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.